Okay, so this is episode eight. Uh, the final episode next time um, is entitled Stabilizers. Uh, this episode is Meltdown. And uh, we're going to read uh, just the first verse, and then I want to comment, and then we'll read on. Final verse in chapter three, when God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to the Ninevites, and he did not do it. Now, you'll remember from chapter three that Jonah's preaching mission in Nineveh could not have gone any better. It was a preacher's dream, wholesale city repentance from seemingly a rather arbitrary, short little preach that he preached. It could not have got better. So we are all certain that chapter four is gonna begin by saying, and so Jonah returns to his own land rejoicing, right? Instead, it doesn't. Look what it does say. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry, and he prayed to the Lord. O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it. You were kind. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Note to self, if God ever asks you that, the answer's no. Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a sh shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. I presume he means spiritually speaking, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So this is a real surprise for us readers. We were sure he would land after the revival in chapter three into chapter four, all buoyant. Instead, he's having a breakdown. We thought he was going to be filled with joy. Instead, he's furious. We're told he was angry four times. We thought that his successful mission to Nineveh would have given him a, a renewed zest for life. But instead, he's got a death wish. He's, he's genuinely suicidal. He says it twice. I don't want to carry on living. Our only question has to be, why did this guy flip out? Why did he melt down? 
Because if Jonah, who was a mature, seasoned believer, he was a respected prophet in Israel, if he can have a meltdown, you can and I can as well. This was an emotional meltdown and a spiritual meltdown. Where did it come from? Why did he flip out? Well, let's just focus in on 3.10 and then 4.2. So, and be just clear, because we're told very explicitly why he melted down. Uh, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. So God led Jonah to believe that he was going to wipe out the city. I don't know, through a plague or through a fire or something. But they repented when Jonah preached and God relented. Then Jonah says, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So we've got the big reveal here at the end. Now we're let in on the conversation that Jonah has been having with God throughout this book that we were unaware of. We've got new intel now that makes us go, aha, that's what was going on all along. Do you remember back in, uh, we were at, at um, Lone Oak. It was, it was um, the pilot episode uh, entitled Fugitive right at the beginning of the series, episode one. And um, God told Jonah, go and preach to Nineveh. And Jonah completely overreacts. He doesn't just stay at home and is just sort of pretends he hasn't heard God. Uh, he, he's an absolute drama king. God tells him to go there. He doesn't just not go there. He goes down to Joppa, Joppa gets into a boat, and heads off to Tarshish. It's a complete head scratcher. And I tried to make as much sense of it as I could in episode one. Because we were, we were told some other things. With the info we had, we, we tried to explain why he did it, why he would have been so disobedient. But there was just this nagging thing. Something doesn't add up. This is more than just standard disobedience. He fled in the opposite direction. And we, we thought, Jonah, whoa, dude. That is... Something strange is going on in your life. Your behavior doesn't completely add up. To not go to Nineveh, you don't have to go to Tarshish. I had that feeling that I sometimes get with others, because you know you're better at spotting weaknesses in other people than you are in yourself, right? Anyone else like that? I, I had the feeling with Jonah that I sometimes get with other people. It's like, you do really love Jesus, and you obey his word, except in that area. And we try to talk to you about obeying God in that area and you still don't. It's like something doesn't add up because you do love Jesus, but you're stubborn as a mule there. And we sometimes think, is he really a Christian? And you think, no, of course he is. Look, he really does love Jesus. But what, what's going on there? It's the feeling we get when so-and-so has been a believer for 30 years and he's mature, but everyone knows in that area, he becomes a basket case. It's the feeling we get with someone, and she's been a believer for 30 years, mature, selfless, but you just know 
if you poke her there, it'll unleash the beast. And we just go, no, you don't go there with her. It's, it's like we get it, but then question mark. And obviously, I've, you know, it's spoken hypothetically. You, you can think of yourself, and as we get more self-aware, we can think, that is my area of significant weakness. It, it's just that area I'm ultra vulnerable or ultra crazy. <laughs> I just change. That's the feeling we had with Jonah. We know, we know he was a good, responsible guy. He was a prophet in Israel. What, what's, what's going on? So it wasn't just the opening verses that caused us to scratch our head. It's the whole way through. We've tracked with Jonah, but we've been puzzled, have we not, by his schizophrenic behavior. If you read elsewhere in the Bible, outside of the book of Jonah, he was, he was a, a recognized prophet in Israel. He had the king's ear. Mature and, we presume, selfless. And then in chapter 1, he crashes down. He runs away and he sleeps at the bottom of the boat. Immature, selfish. And then at the end of chapter one, he sacrifices himself to save the sailors. Mature and selfless. And then he's in the belly of the whale and he's repentant. That's mature. And then he's clearly anointed in Nineveh. Not too much details given about him in Nineveh. And now we, we've got him in chapter four. He's a vindictive, petulant crybaby. Big themes like a city of 120,000 and a bit of sunburn. He's just, he's had a meltdown. We're puzzled by this guy. What's going on with him? Well, we're told, we're let into the secret finally. And by the way, if you're in the sun, you need to move. Please just move. What's going on? Well, all along, he suspected that God might pardon the Ninevites. He hoped they would be blotted out because they were an immensely wicked nation. Even take Christianity out of it. They were barbaric. It was horrific. He thought and hoped that they would be slaughtered by the Lord some way, but he suspected that they wouldn't be. And when it didn't happen, the thing that was so near to his heart, when it didn't happen, he was angry and he wanted to end his life. When his, this was his issue, it might not be yours or mine for you, me, it might be something else. When his racist political aspiration was thwarted, he fell in a heap. There was really nothing, nothing redemptive we could say about him in this final chapter. Except one thing that I'll get to right at the end. Jonah had something in his life, some dark thing in his life, that was loathing for the Ninevites. That was his thing. It was loathing for not just one person. It was for them that was so precious to him, it was more precious to him than his relationship with God. So when it was taken away, he fell down. Not even God could keep him up because his life wasn't founded on God as much as it was this, this other thing. So let's do two analogies just to help us through on this. The first one is feet, the second one is heart. Um, so we have two feet. 
And it is absolutely right for someone who is a, a Christ follower. Obviously, this is a New Testament story, uh, New, Old Testament story, New Testament language, Christ follower. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the Old Testament. It is absolutely right for those of us who are Christ followers to have one foot firmly on God. And this is an analogy, it's not perfect. And then it's absolutely right that our other foot is connected to, is on other good things, not other bad things. If it's on a bad thing, take it off. But good things like my personal health and well-being, how I think about myself and how I look, how I feel about myself and how I look. Um, family. We should, be, we should connect with family. Be responsible with family. Love our families. Um, careers. Work is good. We should give ourselves to our careers. Um, a, a political party. We should, we, should have, we should vote for a political party. Those things are good, and we should engage with them. One foot on God, one foot on these things. Now, here's the rub. Our God foot should not just be on God, it should be embedded into the concrete of God. So imagine God is a, a pillar of concrete that comes up to my mid-thigh. My foot on God should be in the concrete. In fact, the concrete should go up to my mid-thigh. And then my foot on the other things should rest on them, not in them. That's the way it's meant to work. That I worship God, I am solid in God. That if one of, because he will never change. There's no way this, this one is going to be upended because God is constant and faithful. But my personal health, my career, my family and my family members, the choices they make, and how politics plays out in November, those things are temporary and uncertain. And if I have embedded into those, and they go away, I don't want them to go, and I'm not thoroughly founded in God, my primary foundations and aspirations in God, and then one of these things goes the way I don't want it to, whoop, over I go, meltdown flat on my back. Analogy number two, heart. Our hearts love us. My heart wants the best for PJ Smythe. And what our hearts do, this is, this is my heart and it's a radar. What our hearts do is send a radar out for four things. They know that I have four fundamental human needs. Um, identity, feel good about myself. Security, feel safe. Significance, feel purpose. And satisfaction, feel complete. And my heart says, PJ, he's my boy, and he needs these things. So my heart is doo, 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 just constantly searching for things that will give me identity, satisfaction, significance, and what did I say? Security. And then the oh happy day comes when my heart hears of Jesus, the one who says, come to me, I will give you rest, eat of my bread, you'll never be hungry, drink of me, you'll never thirst again, and my heart goes PJ, game on, this is what we've been looking for, and he locks on to Jesus. 
who gives ultimate satisfaction. The only one who can give ultimate satisfaction in life. And my heart locks on. Hallelujah. My heart works for me. Annoyingly, my heart then works against me. My heart keeps his options open. I don't know if you can see my thumb here. So my heart is made up of five bits, three of them locked onto Jesus. But we've got this pinky and we've got this fat thumb and they just want to keep the options open in case there's something else out there. You see them? See them? In case there's something else out there that can bring their master, PJ, identity, significance, satisfaction and security. So they keep their options open and they find something like, something that's good, and they, 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 they lock onto it in a way that's inappropriate. Family, career, politics, finance, the way I look, etc. And the result is a divided heart. Now this explains Jonah, Jonah's schizophrenia. It explains your and my schizophrenia. One day, on one day, we love God, and we really do. And the next day, off to Tarshish, disobedience. How can we say, Lord, Lord, but not do the things that I tell you to do? One day, we love people, the sailors. He sacrificed himself for the sailors. A couple of days later, he hates people, 120,000 Ninevites. It explains his schizophrenic behavior. His heart does really love the Lord, but it also loves some other things in a way that's inappropriate. How do we know if we have these idols? Because that's what these things are. If the good thing becomes an ultimate thing on a level with Jesus, or if a good thing becomes something that is even greater than God, that's the one we've got our, our foot embedded in. God, well, we just keep a foot on. It's embedded a bit. But really, this is, this is the main source of my identity, security, satisfaction, significance. Then that's an idol. It's, it's another God. How do we know, friends, if we've got one of these? Because it took a few chapters. It took this for it to become clear to Jonah that he had it. Now, before we look at these questions, I just want to point out the wonderful redemptive thing in this chapter, because it'll encourage you and I before we do a bit of diagnostic and detective work in our hearts. We're left with a cliffhanger. Like the book ends abruptly, doesn't it? It's like, did someone forget to put in the final sentence? It just ends with the Lord saying, should I not be concerned for the great city of Nineveh? That's full stop, question mark, end. So do you think that Jonah came good? Like, do you think he was as self-aware as we're becoming aware about him? What do you think? Or do you think he just stayed this divided heart, <laughs> idol-worshipping, schiz spiritual schizophrenic for the rest of his days? What do you think? Did he come to this kind of self-awareness? I think the answer is a big fat yes. Because who, who told this story? Jonah. He had to be the one to tell this story, whether he actually penned it or dictated it. 
but he was the only one who could have told this story. And he's deliberately told this story in the most self-deprecatory, beautiful way. He told this story about himself. And he's kept us in the dark and pulled this twist at the end under the inspiration of the Lord to help others realize these kind of idols in our hearts. For him, it was a racist political one. His great aspiration was that. Skillful, God-anointed writing. He, he, he's written it in such a playful way that it was, it was fact, it's history, we believe that. But such a playful way, I think he was absolutely clear on how the Lord had worked in, in him through this journey. So how do we know if we have competing gods in our hearts? Here, here's a few questions, not an exact science, um, and you might only be able to answer one, one or two of them. They're different ways of asking the same thing. It's just helping us with the Holy Spirit to self-probe. So they're, they're in our notes. A diagnostic question number one, the thing I regularly get most angry about is, what's that? Now, you might not be the angry sort, then please substitute that word angry with manipulative. Because usually they go together. And actually we see Jonah trying to manipulate God, don't we? Petulant anger, it's always a manipulating uh, a behavior. So what's the thing you get most angry or manipulative about? Uh, diagnostic two, the thing I'm most prone to fear is, or the thing I'm most prone to despair about is. Number three, the thing that I must have to be happy is. Number four, if I don't get X, I, I'm not sure I'd have a reason to live. You might have even caught yourself saying that from time to time. If honestly, if I wasn't able to do that, if I couldn't do this, I don't know if I'd have a reason to live. I want to add one more diagnostic question just in case it, it helps someone that I only saw this morning when I was sort of re-preparing, so it didn't make it into the, the list you've got in front of you. Uh, diagnostic question five, where am I bending or ignoring God's word? And again, you might, because of how, how cunning we are to deceive ourselves, you may need someone else's help with that, but I noticed that Jonah, he wasn't listening to God anymore. You know, God says, do you have any right to be angry? Yes, I do. <laughs> And we can get a bit like that when, when the thing that we most love, our idol is threatened, uh, our idol cunningly, they, they are absolutely slippery and hard to spot. So we usually need someone, someone else's help uh, with that. You know, the nature of a blind spot is that you can't see it. So I've put, um, I don't know if you've got it in your notes, but I've got it in mine. Um, if you can ask a friend, spouse or family member or a colleague, um, uh, these questions say, hey, you try and if you are answering these for me, could you even answer just one of them for me? Obviously, try and answer them yourself, but if you're, if you're brave enough, you can ask someone else to, to chip in. Now, those things might be an idol like this. It may be a small idol. It may be a big idol. I hope those questions will be helpful. Uh, what's the remedy? 1 Thessalonians 1.9 that we looked at in our, our 1 Thessalonians series at the beginning of the year. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, you Thessalonians, 
turns to God from... Locked on, and then you brought these ones in as well. Can you see, watch? You disembed, we disembed from that. We say, oh, that's a good thing, but it's become an ultimate thing. I'm embedded, if that thing doesn't go the way I want, I'm, I'll melt down. So Jesus, I am gonna look to you. We turn to God. It's not, this isn't a sort yourself out, make a new year's resolution. It's not turn from idols, it's turn to Jesus, amen? Because he is the one who satisfies. There's something supernatural about the God-man Jesus that if we embed ourselves in him and feed on him and cultivate a relationship with him, then we will feel robust. And though all sorts of storms hit and things change and temporary things don't go the way we want, we can find identity, security, satisfaction, and significance in Jesus. You just got to love it, man. Church outdoors. Beautiful. Trees, birds, flight, aeroplanes. We turn not just away from idols, because if we do that, we'll just pick another one. Remember, your heart needs to help you get significance. We must lock on to Jesus. Uh, and if you haven't done that yet with the Lord Jesus, the, the, the initial lock on, which is, it, the, it's, it's when you're saying, Jesus, you are my Lord, the initial lock on, wonderfully, the Bible says, in that moment, you're putting your faith in him and you ask him to forgive you of your sins. Because he died on the cross to take the penalty of death that we deserve. We lock on to Jesus, receive his forgiveness, Know that we have peace with God now and for all eternity because our, our sin has been washed away since past, present, and future. We lock on to Jesus. And that begins the journey of satisfaction. And then along the way, we keep an eye out for when our hearts wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Our hearts are prone to wander. You lock on to Jesus, you are saved. But there's a wandering and we need God's word and God's spirit. We need preaching. We need brothers and sisters to exhort us. Hey, hey, come back in. And as we grow, we get more and more self-aware, don't we? So we can spot our own hearts when they're wandering. We say, oh, that foot has got a bit deep in that situation. I'm vulnerable. If that goes wrong, I'm vulnerable. So what do we do? We disengage and we engage deeper in the Lord. Foundations in the Lord. Next week, we're going to look at stabilizers. Obviously, the big stabilizer is this, concreted into the Lord. It's this, all elements of the heart on Jesus, so we're wholehearted, not part-hearted. But next week, I want to look at a few more practical stabilizers, uh, talk a bit about the vine, <laughs> the sunburn. It's just very instructive, some bolstering stabilizers around this great stabilizer of being founded on the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.